Hi, welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. We spent the winter revisiting our mission and visiting various guests we had on a few years ago. Starting next week, if all goes well, we'll be having new guests join us to talk about how they manage doing what pays the rent, what connects them, and what they create. Until then, in just a little while, we'll revisit a conversation with Victoria Quine, a professional circus artist and coach. As we begin to open up society post-COVID, there's going to be a very strange experience for a lot of families. And it's that the lockdown, which on the one hand made life so difficult in so many ways, will end. But there were also unexpected upsides. For anyone who had kids blossom in a school-free environment and want to continue that positive experience while also being able to return to work and wonder if it could happen, all last fall in 2020, my guests were working parents who homeschool. Not remote school, but actual homeschool. And they'll tell you all about how they manage, both practically and philosophically. It is a huge mindset change to homeschool. But you've seen, if your kids blossomed, you've had a glimpse at how good it could be. Imagine that plus the world opening up to them. It's magical. And it's pretty liberating for your family, I promise you, that mindset change. I do a lot of work around relationships, my own and my clients, in all domains, work, family, community. And a couple days ago, I stumbled over the work of the Scottish comedian Daniel Sloss. Warning, his stuff is dark. It is not safe for work. He is very young, and he started comedy very young, which is a hallmark of a supportive family system. But his insights into relationships, particularly romantic relationships, just stopped me cold. Towards the last third of his show, Jigsaw, he says this. From the bottom of my heart, I believe that 80% of relationships in the world and therefore in this room are garbage. A bunch of people who never took the time to learn how to be alone and therefore never learned how to love themselves. So you employed someone else to do it. I listened to that like three times and then I went and got a transcript of it just to be sure I had really heard what I thought I heard and how that worked. This is some of the most important work we will ever do in our lives, is understanding not just how relationships work, but how they work for us in particular. I don't know about you, but I was taught that thinking about yourself is inherently selfish. And now I've come to the realization that the people who tell you that tend to be narcissists. They want all of your attention and they want to distract you from truly knowing and satisfying yourself because they feed off of that attention for themselves. So having the time and space to be okay with yourself alone, to know yourself, to know your needs is hugely threatening to people who 
are so fragile and insecure that they are threatened if you do. And these are exactly the kind of people that will make your life a drama-filled nightmare. And they are correct in that once you are able to be uh, strong with your sense of self, you will dial down the intensity of your relationship with those people. And that is incredibly healthy because those are people who need to do their own work and aren't. They are just employing someone else to do it. Being single is considerably better than being in a relationship that doesn't suit you. Another like phenomenal piece of wisdom that we never really cover in this world. There is a wonderful website that I have mentioned before and we'll mention again and again until everybody subscribes to it. It's called Wait But Why. And if you just Google Wait But Why Relationships, he does hilarious and poorly drawn cartoons on various concepts. And in this particular case, that exact concept. People think and are taught and reinforced all the time that being alone is a bad and sad and lonely thing. Being alone is not the worst kind of loneliness. Being with someone in a bad relationship, in a relationship that doesn't meet your needs, is hundreds of times lonelier than being unattached to someone and being part of a community of supportive friends and meeting your needs and knowing your needs and knowing you have the right to have your needs. That is not loneliness. Not really. And it's interesting that, again, English doesn't really have the concepts and also that we just don't accept those concepts. They're not super tidy from a narrative point of view. They certainly don't suit patriarchy and they certainly don't suit the sort of marketing aspect that that dominates our lives, which is one in which everyone should be in some state of pain or fear or sadness because they'll buy more things. So the fact of it is being single is a step up, a huge step up from being in a bad relationship. And I do love, love, love in Wait But Why, he draws them on the stairs. People assume that being alone is the sad, lonely, terrible default state of bad, and that being in a relationship is good. Being in a good relationship is above you, is good. Okay, I could see that. I mean, it's not too different from a community of friends. If you're getting your needs met and are in a supportive relationship, then that would be up the stairs from being alone and wanting that kind of partnership. Okay, but not actually that many people are in that space. And far more people have accepted the requirement of a bad relationship that you be less of yourself and meet fewer of your needs. And all those people are way down the stairs from someone who's single. All of it's unsustainable. All of it exacts a price. Anytime your needs are not being met in a relationship, you are paying a price. We look at this whole situation through loss most of the time. And sure, it is. We're primates. For the time that the relationship is good, 
our brains physically change our glucose uptake to accommodate the companionship of our partner. When we lose that partner for whatever reason, we'll have a physical as well as emotional adjustment period because we have to, our bodies have to actually relearn how to uptake glucose. It has to readjust the amount of glucose we uptake because of that loss. We readjust all of the, we, we readjust when we lose a friend for whatever reason. They ghosted us or they died or they moved. We do it whenever we lose a pet. So we do this because of the way we're wired. We have this physical response, which is worth knowing because a lot of times we either berate ourselves or others berate us for our period of grieving without understanding that there is in fact a very physical element to grief. But remember this, if we're losing this person for a healthy reason, all the other processes are readjusting too. The cortisol, the adrenaline, every hormone that is released when we are in a situation that makes us unhappy, a situation that makes us mask our true selves or turn against our true selves or work against our own best interests, all of those take a toll on the body as well. So while we may experience, we will experience some grief and loss at the loss of a relationship, there is an entire universe of other systems that are now being liberated in a healthy way. Soulmates is a construct. It's a narrative construct. It's a fiction. It's a lovely description of a relationship that's working. Although it's usually when it's done in a healthy way, when people talk about their soulmates, it's really retconning. They didn't know that person was their soulmate from the beginning. Nobody does because it's a construct. It's sort of a beautiful way to talk about something that has worked out to work. So it's fictional. And here's the thing about that fiction. While it's narratively satisfying, no other person, no, no other human being should have to fill that place in any of us because our soulmate is our actual soul. It's our true selves. We can't employ someone else to be that. Because if we think we can, we are either burdening that other person to fulfill all these needs that are unmet in ourselves and unacknowledged in ourselves, or we are opening wide the doors of ourselves to be prey for narcissists and abusers and other predators. Both of those things are unsustainable and unhealthy. The fiction is that somehow one single person will fulfill for us what a community should be. I said before that this is hardwired because we're primates, and it is. As primates, we require the support and love of community. Look at other primates. They hang together in groups, doing group things. We have largely distilled that into this truly bizarre situation where we have one other person fulfilling our community needs. And it's been bad for all of us. And then at most, at most, we may have kids who we look to to feed this empty spot in us. 
We have similar experiences with our parents where they're looking to us to feed empty spots in them. We are hoping for different from them. That is too tiny for human groups. For the kind of primates we are, that's too tiny. And certainly one person being all of that is a terrible ask. And yet we kind of believe it. Because on the bigger side, the side we never see, we never explore this in movies or TV or books or even conversations with those around us, is that when we leave a relationship that is bad, that doesn't meet our needs, we are released. The entire world is now an opportunity. There are seven. Point eight billion other human beings in this world. Some of those are kids, about 25%. 5.5 billion people. Is your available number if you're not picky? So that's all well and good. But you still have to answer to yourself and those around you on a practical level about all this stuff. Like sometimes just the fact that we know is yet another thing to have to cope with given that those around us don't help or acknowledge these healthy realities. When you are out with someone, when you are getting to know them as a potential romantic partner, stop asking for that employing others piece. Stop asking yourself, do they like me? That is not the important question. The important question is, how do I feel in their company? Every time they do something, ask yourself, how am I feeling? And here's a caveat. Our number of scientific studies have been done on the fact that we already do this at a very subconscious level. So sometimes we may be coming down with stomach flu and be with someone, and because we're feeling fluttery, because we're feeling off, we may attribute that to attraction. So keep that in mind. Give it some time. See where it goes. It's actually one of the reasons why having sex in a, early in a relationship can be kind of a confusing physical mind thing. I'm not against it. Do what you do. But understand that you may be making yourself physically happy because it's fun, not because this person is the best person to be with. And that's fine. There's a movie that's getting kind of old and it's not a great movie. I can't really recommend it, but it's called The Runaway Bride. It's based on a book, I think. I think it's based on a real story about a woman who kept getting to the altar with people thinking absolutely positive that this person was going to be the soulmate, the one, and then bailing at that last second at the altar. But the thing I really like and the thing that stayed with me about what is a truly silly movie is that in scene after scene after scene with these boyfriends turned fiancés, the main character, the actual runaway bride, is so accommodating. And certainly there's a huge value placed on compliance and accommodating others in our culture. She always orders breakfast the way her sweetheart does. 
He orders scrambled eggs. He says, what do you want? She says, oh, I'll have scrambled egg. She just goes along. And the big realization for her, whatever, act three realization, is that she does not know how she likes to eat eggs. She's never bothered to find out what she actually likes. And it's played for funny. It is. But it is also serious. And if you take that and extrapolate it to every part of your life, what do you like? What do you not like? You get to end a relationship because it doesn't meet your needs. Period. That is the bar. You have to take the time to know your and understand your needs. But in terms of intimate partnering, as we go through life, this idea that everything has to be done, first of all, now, and everything has to be done permanently, and that everything has to be just that you must be paired off as the ideal situation, that is 100% not true. And the earlier you can learn this, the more likely you are to find a compatible other person and prove me wrong. And hey, one more thing. If it's humanly possible, do this work before you bring other human beings into the world. Because I guarantee you, although nobody is perfect, you never will be, no one ever will be. The big issues that you have with your own parents, those are going to indicate the places where they did not meet their own needs. They were not their own soulmates in those places. Those gaps are going to be the ones that you inherit. And the gappier the parent, the more you're going to inherit. And the more you work on those for yourself, the fewer you are going to pass down to your own kids, if you choose to have them. Today, I'm talking to Victoria Quine, a coach and circus performer, about how she learned to do what she does and how she got started and how she balances work, community, and creativity. being on the show, Victoria. Thanks. Good to be here. You can start with any of these three. You want to just talk a little bit about what you do and then we'll talk about the rest? Uh, yeah. Funny because all of them kind of end up being one thing for me. Oh, um, that's so, magical. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> uh, so I'm a circus artist and I work at the New England Center for Circus Arts. I primarily get my income by coaching. I coach adult trapeze classes, as well as intermediate and advanced youth troupe. Um, mm-hmm. And those are kids who've decided that they want to do circus more. So they come in twice a week to train more intensively. Okay. So that's how I get, you know, the bulk of my income. I also do a little bit of office work for NECA. Uh, mm-hmm. I used to schedule private lessons and be the person coordinating all those among all the coaches and the students. Uh, although I handed that off over the summer and am now the outreach coordinator. Oh, nice. Yeah. What does that mean? What do you do? It's still, I'm still kind of learning what it is because it's new. (laughs) Uh, But mostly it means we do a lot of outreach programs with local schools and communities. And so my job is to coordinate them together so that we can bring schools to us and we can go to schools Uh. for one-off workshops or uh, locally there's a thing called winter sports where the schools will come to us for about five weeks 
and they just get to do weekly circus with us, which is really fun. Mm, nice. Yeah. And then we're also starting, hoping I'm trying to <laughs> reach out to more than just schools, but also, um, you know, we have some housing programs nearby that are really mm. important, I think, to be involved with and, and support. And we also have a residential living community for seniors who were in the process of setting up a volunteer performance for them. So several of our students would go over and kind of give them a midday performance. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Is there some thought that that group would ever want to take participate, take classes, anything like that for exercise? Uh, Maybe. I mean, we haven't talked about that so much. Mostly what I'm doing right now is just learning the job and figuring it out and making Mm -hmm. sure that we are maintaining what we've done in the past before I start adding on to it. Right. Um, So there's so much research that's been done to show how good circus is for older people. Mm. So it'd be really Mm. great if we can start doing that, but it's not at the forefront of my responsibilities right now, but I would love to get to that. And you might need to ease them into it a little bit, show them at first maybe, and then. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. involve them a little that way right right so is that full-time for you the coaching pretty much or is that uh yeah I mean I think technically it ends up being part-time because it's less than 40 hours mm. uh but it is my only source of income mm-hmm. so so in my world it counts as full-time. right right and how did you get to there how did you get to what you do now. Did you do circus when you were younger? How did you get into it? No, actually. Uh, I didn't discover circus until I got to college. Oh. I grew up as a competitive dancer. Ah. Uh, I started dancing when I was two and was a competitive dancer for 13 years. Wow. Uh, and so I was really immersed in that world and also did gymnastics as a kid mm. up to the point where they wanted me to compete and I couldn't because I was already competing in dance. <laughs> so I ended up kind of having to they didn't have any other things for me to do if I wasn't competing in gymnastics. So I ended up dropping out of that. Uh, interesting. But I've always been really active. I also did swim team as a young kid. Uh, decided to do JV tennis when I was in high school because apparently I didn't have enough going on. <laughs> um, so I've always been really active. And then when I got to college, uh, I went to Hampshire College, which okay. is in Western Mass. And is a fun little hippie school. And they have a cool program, an orientation program. So when you get accepted to school, they send you an orientation packet that says basically, okay, when you get to school, you get to join a club and that's how you're going to learn about things. So Mm -hmm. rather than having these like orientation weeks where you just go around with a mass of several hundred other people and learn where the dining commons are and how to use library and stuff like that. Instead, you're doing it in your, in your club, which is interest-based. Huh. Interesting. Which is really, that is nice. Yeah. It's so, so cool. And it means that you kind of get some like built in friends because theoretically you picked this because you're interested in it. Right. And so now you have a group of people who are also entering school who are also interested in those things. So one of my choices was blacksmithing that I was excited about. That's cool. <laughs> Neat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a M&M and M&M hiking group, which is hiking up Mount Monadnock while eating M&Ms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is a uh, kayak down the Connecticut River in your formal wear, like your prom gowns and tuxes and everything. <laughs> Yeah. I've never seen photographs, but I want to. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty silly. And any anyone can set up uh, an orientation group. So if you're a second to, you know, well, if you're a second year or older, then you can totally opt to become a uh, an orientation leader. So it's basically just like you and two friends decide you're going to start a club. Go. 
Oh, <laughs> actually, you might only need one other person. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this is a really long story. But the point is, one of those groups, actually two of those groups were circus groups. One of them advertised themselves as like, do you want to do handstands and climb on people and learn mad ninja skills? Mm-hmm. And I was like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. Nice. Mm-hmm. Those are all of my interests. <laughs> and the other one was a more manipulation based circus group. For people who are into flow arts, like hula hooping Ah, or boy. Thank you for explaining that. (laughs) I specifically remember that they mentioned pen twirlers. (laughs) (laughs) The people who like fidget with their pens and stuff. Uh, And it was just a cool acrobatic circus group versus the manipulation circus group. We ended up coming together and working together a whole lot. Mm. But I I pretty much immediately fell in love with it. Uh, By the second semester, they'd asked me to be a signer, which is... uh, uh, I don't know how to translate this for normal people. Um, (laughs) it's like the people who lead the group. Okay. So like less than the presidents, but like the coordinators for the group, Mm -hmm. which are usually upperclassmen, but Mm, by second semester, they'd asked me to help. Nice. So I did for the next several years. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And what did you do for a project? I know Hampshire is project based, right? It's not really majors based. So what was your project? Uh, so mine, which we call Div 3s, Division 3 programs or projects, mine, I studied cognitive psychology and child oh, development. Wow. Huh. And I did this through the lens of circus. So because uh. I loved circus so much, but also have a passion in learning how people learn, especially in like youth development, I, I actually set up an after school circus program in Holyoke, Massachusetts huh. at a low income at risk school. And so I went down there a couple times a week and taught circus to these kids, mm-hmm. having zero experience <laughs> doing anything like that at all, especially <laughs> working with at-risk communities. I was very green and not well equipped to handle <laughs> what came at me. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I bet you learned. Yeah. It was getting thrown into the fire in a big way, but also it ended up being something that I'm, I'm really interested in. And I've gone on to work with several social circus programs and I'm really passionate about working with at-risk youth because it made such a difference in these kids over the period of mm, seven months I was working with them. Wow. Uh, and that's what social circus is, right? It's using circus to reach different groups, diverse yeah. groups, at-risk populations. Is that a good explanation? It is. It's one of it's one of the many explanations. Okay. Uh, it's not just at risk youth. It's also people with special developments, not just youth, adults mm. as well with special developments. Uh, things like working with the elderly that would absolutely qualify as social circus. Um, there's a okay. lot of programs internationally to work with, you know, native groups or other people who wouldn't have easy access to this. Interesting. It's mostly keeping an eye on social justice and using circus to help support people who wouldn't otherwise get that kind of support. Uh Uh-huh. I got it. And the cognitive psychology works into that? Yeah. Well, for me, it was, I had developed a learning theory based off of Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences. Ah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) That's a good touch point. He he, uh, names is interpersonal intelligence. Right. And I was really interested in finding out how that can be used as a learning tool because you know in school there's a lot of lecturing and a lot of writing and a lot of reading but not a lot of uh learning with each other okay and that's one of the things that I loved about our circus club circus folk unite at college they 
they were really open to having everyone come in. It was a non-hierarchical system of having whatever information you know, we are all equal. Mm. So if you know nothing and you have never used your body before, you are as valuable as the person who's, you know, was a pre-Olympic gymnast. Mm. And we can all learn from each other. We don't have set teachers, but you're really open to being like, hey, I have information about this. Like, I'm really good at back handsprings. Cool. Let me help teach you. Uh-huh. And so everyone teaches each other. And that worked out in such a wonderful way that everyone is supported. I came in completely green to circus, but had a lot of dance experience. So I was able to help out with things like dance choreography. And I have, I have stage presence from being right. on stage so much. So things like that. And I wanted to see if there was a way to do that intentionally, especially with youth. Right. Interesting. And it was minorly successful. Mostly one of the main challenges I saw was that I am an adult coming into a group of kids and our society has already said that's a hierarchy. The right. adult is in charge that children are not. Mm. And so the kids all look to me to be in charge and teach them things, which of course <laughs> I did, but also tried to foster ways to help them teach each other. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about balancing work, community, and creativity. What are some good ways to do that? Well, one of one of the things that I came up with is recognizing, especially because I was so new to teaching, that I didn't have as many ways to teach as I currently do. You know, it's been mm-hmm. almost 10 years at this point. So I, you know, I've learned quite a bit. Right. But back then I didn't know as much. And I was one specific example. I was trying to help this kid learn how to do a cartwheel. And clearly my way of teaching him wasn't very helpful. He was struggling. I was feeling a little frustrated because ah, why aren't you getting this? And also, ah, I'm clearly <laughs> failing you. <laughs> Just like the most frustrating part as a teacher. And there was another girl in the class who had fantastic cartwheels. She could just kind of chuck them. She was great. And after a little bit of time where both of us, this little boy and I were getting a little bit frustrated and I was worrying that he was going to start giving up and being like, well, I just can't mm. do it. And I said, hey, you know what? I see that I'm not doing a great job for you right now, but your friend over there is really good at cartwheels. Can you go ask her what mm, she's doing nice. and ask her to help you? Mm-hmm. And he did. And the two of them went off. And this is worth knowing. These kids were not usually the kind of kids who worked well together, mm. <laughs> but they went off together and like really on task work for like 15 minutes. And this, he, he got better at his cartwheels. Neat. So Neat. Encouraging him to seek out his resources among his peers. I think it was really valuable because it empowered her. Of course. That like she saw, I recognized she was good at something and said, hey, you can do something with that help. And also kind of pointed out to them, like, I, I don't know everything. One human can't know everything. Look to the people around you to see who does know things. And who can help you? Right. That's kind of beautiful. So they had a blast. They were laughing the whole time and his cartwheels got at least really better. Oh. And it was wonderful. It, that made me really happy. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And as you're talking about that, I was thinking sort of the obvious question that's going to come up is going to be safety and circus. Of course. I know that the stakes are high if you're up high in the mm-hmm. air, but they're lower if you're on the ground. Right. But that said, I've on occasion run into people who insist that there's a form-based thing in ground-based, you know, there's a, there's a mm-hmm. form that is correct in gymnastics <laughs> and that it's a terrible thing if you do it wrong. 
Is that something that's going to got a little more wiggle room if you're not up on equipment or com- competing? How do you manage the safety issue? Mm. It's a better way to ask. Uh, it's a good question. I feel, well, when we definitely had things like mats, we weren't just working on concrete. So we did have some actual tools built in. Also, I'd already worked with him ah. to give him information about like, you need to have your arms straight because if you bend your arms, your head will hit the ground. Mm-hmm. And also this kid had enough information about his body. He wasn't a complete noodle. He did have some awareness <laughs> of what was going on. It was just the mechanics of where do your hands go? Where do your legs go? And how do you get them over that he was struggling? Right. With. So if he'd been a, a student who really didn't know where his body was in space and he was flailing wildly and in the moments where he wasn't succeeding, he was, you know, putting his body in danger. I wouldn't have let him go seek out a Of peer. course, right. That would have been a situation where I would have been, though, you need adult hands-on help. This was a kid who was able to put his hands on the floor and do a little hop over and just kind of wasn't getting the rest of right. it. Right, okay. So I already knew some information about him and his skill level, which is why I felt comfortable letting him work with this girl especially because they also were on mats. Right, and of course. she wasn't hands-on spotting him. She was showing him uh, and then letting him try. I see. And he was making really good choices about it. You know, as, as they were doing it, I was keeping an eye on them. Yeah, of course. But that being said, there was a little bit of like, well, just go. You're probably going to fall right. down once or twice. Right. But also, people do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you, you can't bubble time. wrap them. That's the other end of it, of safety, is where you just don't do anything exactly. because no one let right. you. Safety and fear have a weird relationship with each other (laughs) absolutely yeah well one of the things that i like i like specifying is perceived Ah, safety right what do you mean by that because sometimes and this happens all the time when i'm you know spotting a student through uh something on trapeze for instance i have i have a quite high level student who's impressively strong she's so capable she knows exactly where her body is and she's just kind of afraid of things Mm. (laughs) and she'll be the first person to say this um and so she likes to really go through things slowly and to really have me there to hold her. And there'll be times when I'm asking her to do something that she is more than physically capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely no doubt. But her brain is afraid. Uh, and I'll remind her, I'm here. You have a spot. You have a big mat underneath you. <laughs> your actual safety is here. What can I do to improve your perceived safety? Right. Because you don't feel safe. What can we do that will make you feel safe? And sometimes it, can you just hold me a little? (laughs) Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, sometimes it's a little bit more pressure in a spot, like to, to give some, you know, not just have your hand on someone's back, but push into them just a little bit so they can really feel it. Right. Uh, And of course, the other end of that is sometimes, especially with, you know, (laughs) there's these moments, like, I feel like trampoline is really, uh, prime example of this of the perceived safety being quite high and the actual safety not being that oh, high interesting yeah where like some people will just try to chuck things that they're not ready for and so it's a, it's a it's always a balancing act of like encouraging the people whose actual safety is high and their perceived safety is low and reminding them no you are okay you are safe here's why right. and then also pulling back the people who think they're very safe when they're absolutely not <laughs> well my understanding of gardner is that having the teacher involved the instructor involved you can't test where people are in their intelligences but it belongs in the relation mm-hmm. the relationship so when you said before about you've worked with them before you know 
what they do, you have a good idea of where they're at. You collaborate with them to challenge them. Right. Versus saying, oh, well, let me look at my box. You tick this one. You tick that one. Guess you're ready for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go buy it if you <laughs> haven't read them. Multiple intelligences. But there's no quibbles about it after the fact. I was about to say, it's been somewhat debunked since then. But it's still, I feel it's really valuable information. It's useful in a practical way. So yeah. even if it's not something that can be sort of a rule of all data, it's a really nice way to approach learning. Yeah. Mostly just there are so many different ways that people learn and people don't learn exclusively through, through one way. People say I'm a visual learner. You are not exclusively a visual learner. Right. You can learn in other ways also. But knowing that these are different ways that people find easier, it's good to be able to move through them and recognize, you know, now that I have more experience, if I were working with that child and realizing, okay, clearly my, my verbal use isn't helping you. Mm. Yeah. What other ways, what other ways that could I reach out that might help you get this? And You know, the way that I used was interpersonal. Let me go send you to a friend. Of course. Right. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) I like the fact that he's got more than just reading, writing, math. Right. Right. It's all sorts of other versions like interpersonal and kinetic. And that's something that people should be valued for. And also intrapersonal, which I I feel I end up using a lot. And that means uh, looking within yourself. Right. Uh, so some of what I do, like, actually, I just did this game with, uh, my class. I gave them a puzzle. I said, go invent a trick. Mm -hmm. And as I expected, everyone kind of gave me a blank stare because, (laughs) oh my God, in the entire world of every trapeze skill ever, you think I can come up with something new? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. You can. Here, let me help you. (laughs) And, uh, so I said, you know, if you want to just go and explore and find something, go for it. And if you need a little scaffolding, you know, here's one puzzle. Can you find something that's inverted upside down and involves a wrap? Mm. Whatever that means, wrap your body around something, wrap the apparatus around you. And so that was one of the puzzles. I gave them another one as well. But with that information, they were like, okay. And the entire class went up and they all invented some really interesting shapes. And, and it was cool to see the moments where, you know, it, an artist goes through something and pauses and you can, you can see them thinking, is this a thing? (laughs) (laughs) And and sometimes they kind of like try to look in the window to see if they have a reflection to see what it looks like. Right. And at those moments, you know, you've had the interpersonal discovery of like, this feels like a thing. Now I need an outside eye. And that's moments and I'll call it like, Hey, that looks cool. (laughs) (laughs) Or like, that's an interesting shape you found. Where can you go from there? You know, and just like offering little, little bits of feedback so that they, you know, in the moments when they've paused and they might seem stuck. So they're allowed to go on their interpersonal journey and their, in their inner journey. But then when they're reaching out to see how it might look, when they want to see the audience's perspective, I'm there to offer that as well. Mm. Well, that segues very neatly into the next bit, which is your own creativity. There's a point at which one is so focused on the work part, the technical aspect getting physically to the point where you can do the kind of creating that you want to do. And then the point where you can actually create with it. How do you, you yourself do the creation part? Uh, That's a really good question. I I feel like I just had this conversation with someone else recently too. And I end up, I I film a lot of my training Mm. uh, because we don't have mirrors around. So it's really hard to get feedback, especially because you can't expect someone to sit there and go, Hey, that looks cool. So I, I film what I do. And I find I'll, I'll just have like 
noodle sessions. I kind of, I think about it as doodling, like the apparatus (laughs) version of doodling where you just kind of like mess around and sometimes you come up with something really cool. And sometimes it's just like random scribbles on a page or random flailing on on an apparatus. (laughs) But that's, that's why having video of it is really helpful. And so just like I put on music that I'm really into and move around. And I also like playing uh, this game called the negative space game, which I actually got from Cody Harrell, Mm. who's a a wonderful performer, circus artist based in uh, Santa Fe. And when I lived out there, I worked with him a good, a good bit. Mm. Um, and so he introduced me to the negative space game where you're on your apparatus, you create a shape, and then you move your limbs through the negative space, which means uh, if I'm in a shape with, you know, my arms apart and my legs apart, the negative space is the space where my body isn't, the space around oh, my interesting. body. Interesting. Uh, so I can maybe put a hand between my legs and see can I put my whole arm between my legs what happens if I try to get a leg in between my arms and when you're on an apparatus especially it makes for some really weird shapes and strange transitions (laughs) uh which often end up in like a tangled mess where you've got like your rib cage on the bar and you're wheezing and you don't feel particularly (laughs) artistic (laughs) But, but it's interesting and sometimes it's funny and actually sometimes you find some really cool transitions so just having, allowing space to play, I think is really important. Right. And it's something that we don't, well, it's something that's really easy to forget when we focus so much on technique, which of course is really important, but I've found that I can definitely get so wrapped up in my technique and conditioning that I don't end up actually making anything. Mm, right. So having, having time to do artistic cardio, you know, just (laughs) having time to put music on and move and, uh, not do it for anything other than to feel good and to explore and maybe find a puzzle and get yourself tangled up and get untangled. (laughs) And it ends up, I find that that's, that's actually where my choreography comes from is these weird little doodle sessions. Do you have to schedule that time in? Is it hard to make time for your creating time? Uh, or is this something you really are committed to? So you do it? No, I don't. I'm not as uh, strict about it. I definitely, I definitely follow my heart on it. So mm-hmm. I'll have times when like, I really need to, to work on my conditioning and things like that. And then inevitably there will be the day where it's just, oh my God, I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> do anything. I don't even want to touch it. And, and that tells me it's time for a doodle session. <laughs> I need to go play. I need to create. And also that's, you know, I use that a lot when I'm in act creation. Right. How often do you do that? Uh, it kind of depends. Uh, I've started this monthly open stage here at NECA. Okay. And so I've been performing each month. So, you know, once a month, at least I perform. Nice. And am kind of putting together little things for that. Uh, although this month is kind of funny because, and there's a theme each month and the theme this month is uh, impulse surprise. So I don't, I'm, I'm actually in an act, but I don't know what it is until I get on stage <laughs> because my partners are working on it without me. <laughs> oh, it's a surprise. So I'm actually not, not working on anything this month, which is funny and feels weird. <laughs> <laughs> what have you found as the biggest failure? Catastrophe or if you'd rather challenge that you've ever heard? Yeah, that's a really good question. I get the thing that I'm kind of pausing on right now is like, well, in what category in the art right. category, in the coaching category, do, do you have like a specific or just kind of like, no, all of- 
I don't think it needs a specific category. It's really just sort of a what kind of learning. What was ever just a complete <laughs> bust and what did you do? Quite frankly, that first class that I taught in Holyoke, <laughs> it was, it was, I was so unprepared. I definitely, <laughs> to give you a really quick, you know, setting the scene, within five minutes of the class, a fourth grade girl picked up a second grade boy by the throat and threw him across the room. Oh my God. Which brought me to two situations. One, I was like, whoa, that's not okay. We have physical danger. I need another adult in here to help me out. This is like, whoa. And my other thought was like, oh, she's so strong. She's going to be a great face. (laughs) (laughs) And like, it was really hard to like wrangle both of those at once and like make sure I'm coming up with a rational response that is... (laughs) If we can only harness that. Yeah. And it ended up, I mean, it was, it was a, I, I, nothing about that was a good class. I, I was, didn't have any class management skills yet. I had no idea what I was doing. I had a curriculum that I had never tried before. It was, I, it was not great, <laughs> but, but it ended up working out. But like later on a couple, you know, like a month or two later, that girl actually did end up being a really good baby. <laughs> Once we like set really clear expectations of what kind of touch is appropriate and is not appropriate. Um, and, you know, had like the principal of the school come in to reinforce my authority a little bit. Uh, I, I'm not really sure, you know, just help me be a better teacher. <laughs> right. But it did, it did end up, no one, no one was badly injured, which was good. <laughs> that kid, I think they actually knew each other outside of class anyway. Mm. Uh, so it wasn't the first time they'd met. She was pissed off at him because he was being obnoxious that day or whatever. Not a great response, but still, uh, <laughs> we did we did end up coming to a place where the violence in the class had gone down to zero, which was, <laughs> of course, my main That's thing. Of like, I don't care if you learn how to juggle, but you may not punch someone. <laughs> right. <laughs> Optimally, yeah, right. Here's where <laughs> Let's shift my goals of the class. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think it was. It ended up working out really well because these kids did understand what I was trying to do. And I, I mean, I really, I really did care about all of them and wanted them all to be safe and happy. And I, I just think it like, honestly, I feel like I, I really didn't know what I was doing, but it ended up working out so wonderfully. We had an end of the session uh, recital uh-huh. and I had kids who were like, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to. And they're like, oh, miss, can I be first on stage? Oh. I was like, sure, honey. Oh. Like, yeah. And you kept showing up. That's the other thing I think right. about with this when I hear you talking about this. I don't know that it has to be unreasonable for someone to say, this is too much. No one's going to be up for it. This is not going to work. And walk away and shut the door and bail. I actually, I had that conversation with my faculty advisor because that was, that was a lot. And I, I actually, like, I got in the car and cried oh, all the way yeah. from there back to school into her office. <laughs> I was like, I can't do this. I am there and I'm going to cause people to get hurt. Right. Like, you know, that was my that's logic. That's concern, right. You know, I think that's true of any new teacher. <laughs> Maybe not specifically knew any teacher anyway uh so I I did talk to my advisor and was like I don't know what to do I feel so ill-prepared I don't know how to help these people and to create a space that is safe enough to even begin learning circus she actually talked me through it you know she has however many decades of experience teaching right uh 
And she actually gave me some like class management tools and had me reach out to the school I was working at and to the program. There's like a, a local after school program that I was working under. So I reached out to them for some help. And she's actually the one who said, well, you need to bring an assistant with you. Okay. You know, have, see if one of your circus people will come with you. And sure enough, I got one of my circus people to come help. And that, that helped a lot in, you know, in kind of reassuring me, I'm not, stuck alone in a room, which of course now that wouldn't happen anyway, because we have ratios and right. Anyway, I, you know, there's like a video camera in the space anyway. So I wasn't ever totally alone with the kids, but still right. totally responsible though. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, that was really helpful. And it was mostly just in the moment where I, I actually did kind of want to give up <laughs> and, but wasn't, you know, I wasn't like, I definitely am not going to do this. It was, the, I don't know if I can. Right. And I really credit my, my faculty advisor for basically telling me, yeah, you can, but not like this. Mm. Let's figure out a way that you can do this and kind of helping me find my resources and uh, strengthen my resolve to do it. Nice. It's the magic of asking, right? Yeah. You asked her, she told you to ask. Yeah. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> This might be it too. It could be the same thing, but what do you consider like your biggest triumph? Shockingly easy success. I'm going to go very small scale right now. <laughs> um, so after college, I traveled around Europe, uh, just, you know, kind of like woofing and volunteering at farms and working and stuff. And I ended up uh, with this Polish family in Poland and, you know, it was like mostly teaching English, mm -hmm. um, but they had a 16 year old son and he was kind of curious about what circus was because I had a bunch of photos up on my like personal profile that they found me that you know I was like doing handstands and stuff and he was curious about that and so I was like well come here I'll teach you how to juggle mm. and his English was mediocre and my Polish consists of like four words <laughs> um, but he learned how to juggle in five minutes mm. flat. yes three ball nice. juggling well enough that I could that's, from him. that's great I'm impressed. I know. <laughs> yeah, it was completely bonkers. That that was the easiest thing, and I feel like I I don't think I had anything to do with that. I think <laughs> he just has a brain for it. Wow. Yeah, I have attempted that so many times. I can do scars. Right. Yeah, no, three balls, five minutes. It was amazing. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was that was definitely the easiest and also the lowest stakes. <laughs> you know, he didn't have any interest in performing or anything like that. He was just curious if he could. Right. <laughs> so one thing I like to ask people is, what would you tell your younger self? What advice would you give yourself? I, I think I would tell my younger self that, uh, that it matters, mm. but also you're not going to ruin anyone's life. <laughs> like I was really afraid of ruining my students' lives, you know, specifically at that school. Right. But also, you know, kind of whenever you go into a new space, there's always this like fear of, I don't know, maybe it's just me. <laughs> I don't think this, so. I think this is universal. Right? Like the fear of like, okay, I have information to give them and I hope that I'm going to be able to support their artistic self, their athletic self, their, their hearts, right. their brains. You know, there's so much that goes into coaching right. that, you know, a tiny slice of it is learn the trick. And right. a lot of the rest of it is, you know, injury management and prevention and making sure that, uh, you know, that they're adjusting well to a new space in the situation of, you know, some of the adult students I have now are in the professional training program. 
And they've got so much going on that has nothing to do with whether or not they can do the trick I just asked them to do. Right. You know, maybe they're homesick because they moved across the country mm. and they maybe they came from a warm climate and all of a sudden it's cold and their body is freaking out. Like, <laughs> there's so much to handle. And I think, uh, I think my younger self didn't even know that. And right. just like a little reassurance of like, there's going to be a lot that's going to happen and you can handle this. And you, if you come in with good intentions, that, that goes so far, you know, it's mm. not, you can't just come in with good intentions, but <laughs> if you do come right. in with good intentions and qualified information and skill and years of practice, there's actually, there's a lot of good you can do. Mm-hmm. So having the confidence to know that you're going to be able to do yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Which I feel like that's not just info for my younger self. I feel like that's like advice for me in three years. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's really funny you should say that because I often ask people that about what your younger self, but I was thinking it may not be a better question to say, yeah, what should right. your older self say to you? <laughs> yeah. What do you want to hear? I love that. But is there anything else you want to talk about? I mean, I think I don't have any answers for this, but I, I just want to put out there that like, I recognize how hard the, specifically with circus and I'm sure with other art forms as well. I just don't have as much experience in them, but you know, the hustle life is real mm -hmm. and it is a struggle. Yeah. And I don't think anyone has found a solution to it. You know, some people do take jobs outside of their art, you know, whether it's you have a secretary position and then you come and you do your circus thing. Right. Um, and, you know, like I, I am fully aware that I can get by working technical part time work for a circus school because I'm in shared housing and my expenses are quite low and not everyone right. has those resources. And so like, it is, it is really hard. And I don't, I don't have an answer for how to make that less hard mm -hmm. other than like, I have my version of it. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things about doing this podcast yeah. is just finding out what people do, how they make it work. Cause a lot of times we just tell ourselves, well, that's them. And I can't do that. And that's impossible. But when you find out somebody did it and then find out how they got there, you start to think, well, like, I could shift things around. I could ask. Mm. I could get a little bit of confidence and try something else. Sort of a sense that the more you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And behind the scenes. I think sometimes we see the front of people. It's really easy to see them and think that we know. I'm really interested in how you get a couple of facets mm. done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also I think it's, I, I do recognize, like I talked a lot about school, which is funny because when I talk about circus, I don't usually talk about college, mm. but I, I actually do feel that that's a, a part of it that I don't talk about as much, but actually I do have hopes of going on and getting a higher degree in how circus is more than anecdotally beneficial mm. for at-risk youth. Interesting. And so, yeah. And so studying like the neuroscience behind it and what are, what's the proof that we can use this as like an interventional tool? Right. So it, it's funny how like I came at it from an academic perspective and, you know, recently I've been in the coaching and performing and the directing actually several shows as well. Mm. And I do have, you know, future goals of entering back into academia while also trying to do all of this. So we'll see if <laughs> that actually works. But I'll get back in touch with you. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I don't I don't have any idea how that's going to work. But Circademics, if anyone is interested, the American Youth Circus Organization has 
a great resources for educators. And there's a little subset of those folk that we've called ourselves circademics. Cute. Yeah. And it's people who have gotten degrees studying circus, not just circus performance, but you know, how circus can be used for after school programs or, um, you know, there's gender and circus and there's, there's a lot of really cool stuff that's actually coming out and it's, it's kind of just starting, but it is snowballing. You can see that it was like one or two people. Uh, Jackie Davis was the first person I knew. I actually reached out to her in college to learn some more about what she was doing, but it's really kind of growing and it's interesting to see and exciting to see where it's going to go in the next few years. Well, great. Thanks, Victoria. Thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. It's been really terrific. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to thank Victoria Quine for talking with me today about circus and the learning process. It's all about the asking, so I'm asking you, what do you wish your future self would come back and tell you? That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com. That's with the number 9 to access links, info, and to join the conversation. We're on Twitter at 9 to Thrive and Facebook at Working 9 to Thrive. Thanks for listening.